0: Author Robert Frost summed up all he had learned about life in a phrase. Life goes on. Life has no timeouts, no intermissions, no halftimes. Life never takes a break so you can catch your breath. Life just goes on. And that the key to fulfillment in life is to find some meaning along the journey. This was the ambition of the ancient Greeks. They scoured life's menu, looking for an overarching purpose to make sense of it all. The Greeks noticed that nature operates according to universal laws, thus they figured that there had to be a master plan, a kind of logic or intelligent force responsible for the order and symmetry that they found in nature. The Greek philosophers coined a term for this ultimate reality. The logos, or in English, the word. This was the preoccupation of Greek philosophy, to identify the logos, the reason behind our reality. They examined the visible world around them to pick up on some expression of this unseen purpose. And yet, despite their great wisdom, the philosophers of antiquity failed to find an answer to this ultimate question. Their search ended up a bust. Their wisdom was summed up by a man that quoted Robert Frost, but with an added addendum. He said, life goes on, I just forgot why. The Apostle John, he wrote to a Greek audience, and he must have shocked his readers. For in this first chapter, he answers the question that had stumped their famed philosophers for centuries. John has good news. The Word has been heard. The unseen is revealed. There is a God. And He has made known His nature in a word. The Logos, the Greeks were searching for, was not some primal force, but a person named Jesus. Jesus is the reason behind reality. He is the Logos behind the cosmos. Jesus Christ is the residence of absolute truth of undiluted love, of eternal life. Life goes on, and it's all about Jesus. Come to Jesus, and you find the reason you were created and the purpose for your life. Well, John starts his gospel with a bang. In the beginning was the Word, that is, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here is one of Scripture's clearest testimonies to the deity of Jesus. Jesus is the Word, and the Word was God. Just as my words are an expression of my mind and heart, the Word is an expression of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 tell us that in times past, God spoke to, through Hebrew prophets, but that in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. Jesus is now God's final Word to mankind. In the world of sports, the Nike swoosh is everywhere. It's the company's logo. Nike pays sports teams to wear the swoosh on their uniforms. Nike's logo is nothing more than a big fat apostrophe, but it's instantly recognizable worldwide. It's associated with all that Nike promotes, speed and skill and athleticism and victory. Well, God also has a logo, or logos, we might say. The Word became flesh, a baby. A big, fat, little apostrophe was born. He was born in Bethlehem. And when you think of God's infinite wisdom and ultimate power and perfect love, who do you think of? You think of Jesus. For our Lord is God's logo. He's God's swoosh. All the Nike's corporation, their goals and their culture are encapsulated and expressed in their swoosh. And likewise, all of God is packed up and revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Yet here's a difference between a logo and the logos. Nike created its swoosh, whereas the logos of God was not created. For our Lord Jesus was there before creation. For John says of Jesus in verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. In these first two verses, John sheds light on the mysteries of the universe. Jesus is the expression or the logos of God, but he's more. For he is God himself. The Greek word for, Greek word for God is theos. Thus, John is saying that the Logos and the Theos are one and the same. Jesus was preexistent and uncreated. He was with God before time even began. According to John, the key to life and truth and God is Jesus. For John adds in verse 3, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Jesus is not only uncreated and preexistent, nothing was created apart from him. He is the creator. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, remember, on the sixth day of creation, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God referred to himself here with a plural pronoun. Why? The Bible teaches that there is one true God. But that one God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians refer to God's nature by the term Trinity. God is a blend of both unity and diversity. He's one God, but this one God exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father was not alone in creation, for all three members of the Trinity played a role. In the Bible's opening scene, the Spirit of God hovers over the water. Then the Father God speaks through the Word of God, that is Jesus. Let there be light, and there was light. As John says, all things were made through Him, that is Jesus. And then verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In Him was life. Modern genetics allow us to grow a baby in a test tube and then implant that baby in a mother's womb. We can manipulate the genes of tomatoes to produce specific flavors. We can produce flowers with different colors and smells. Human scientists tinker with life's programming, but we don't produce life. Life itself comes from God. John says life originated in Jesus, in Him, Was life. He is the essence of life. He is life in all its fullness. John tells us in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. You need to understand the key to improving our quality of life will never be found in unlocking our DNA, rather, it'll be found in submitting to God and His desire to transform our lives. We can't undo the fall of man. We are who we are, but we can trust in Christ's redemption, for he has bigger plans for us. Jesus is the template. He is the prototype placed over every human being to help us understand what real life was meant to be. His life, we're told, is the light of men. Now, it's interesting. Ancient Greeks, they thought that life consisted of four elements, light, breath, water, and bread. And this shapes John's pictures to us of Jesus. In chapter one, we'll find that John depicts Jesus as the light of life. In chapter three, he portrays the Lord as the breath of life. In chapter four, he is the water of life. And in chapter six, we'll see that Jesus is spoken of as the bread of life. Well, verse five tells us And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. A more literal translation reveals the verse's progressive sense. It literally reads, The light keeps shining in the darkness, yet the darkness doesn't grasp it. Did you hear about the colony of mice that lived deep down inside the grand piano? From the beginning, the mice enjoyed the beautiful music that came from their piano. The music lighted up. Their dark piano world. Common sense told them that such music was no accident. All mice believed in the great unseen pianist. That is until one day an inquisitive mouse, he crawled into a part of the piano that no mouse had ever been before. He reported back that vibrating wires actually make this music. That's when another mouse went even deeper into the guts of the piano and said that the first mouse was wrong. That music was made by felt hammers striking those wires. The, mouse conclude, the mice concluded that their world was mechanical and impersonal. They figured that the great unseen pianist must have been an accident, must have been an ancient myth, must have been a falsehood. And yet, sadly, they only looked inside the piano, not outside it, to the great pianist who sits at the keyboard. And what happened to the mice colony in their piano world is what has happened to mankind in God's world. We scratched the surface and learned a bit about the mechanics of God's creation. And we've concluded that the music of life is the result of wires and hammers and keys We've ignored the pianist sitting behind the keyboard. If you haven't discovered Jesus, it's because you've only looked inside the piano. You're searching in your dark piano world rather than looking outside of the piano. For there is a light shining into our darkness. When Jesus entered the world, God shined a light into the dark piano The problem is we humans are so used to the darkness that the light hurts our eyes. We cover them over rather than open them to the light. Well, verse 6 tells us, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is not the author, the apostle John. This is Elizabeth's son. This is John the Baptist. We're told this man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. You know, the moon has no light of its own. It only reflects the light of the sun. Likewise, John was not the light. Like the moon, he simply reflected the light of God's Son. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, And the world did not know him. And here is the greatest tragedy in the history of mankind. The creator, the light of the world, the logos visited the world he created and yet his creation failed to recognize him. Verse 11 says of Jesus, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus of Nazareth suffered from a tragic case of mistaken identity, we're told he came to his own, that is the Jews. And understand, the Jews were people who should have recognized Jesus. Through prophecies and pictures, the Hebrews had been trained to recognize their Messiah. If they'd been looking without prejudice, they would have seen God's nature and love and promises in the person of Jesus. But there was evil in their heart. And thus, rather than receive the truth, they tried to silence it. Their case of mistaken identity only covered up their own evil. Verse 12 tells us, But as many as have received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, recognize the Jews felt that it was their right their right to be the children of God. They assumed that membership in God's family was a matter of pedigree, of privilege, and of performance. And they were the possessors of all three. They were born of the bloodline of Abraham. They behaved according to the law of Moses. And salvation was bestowed on them by priestly pronouncements. But they were completely wrong. For salvation is granted by God and God alone. God sets the times. He establishes the terms. He fills the requests. He issues the pardons. He regenerates the spirit. Salvation has never and will never be left in human hands to allocate. It doesn't come via blood or birth or by the strength or energy of the flesh or by the permission of man or of men. In other words, by breed or by deed or by creed. Salvation comes from none of the above. God alone hands out salvation. And he has chosen to give it only to people who trust their lives to his son. And then verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The logos. The reason behind reality became flesh and dwelt among us. I love Peterson's paraphrase. The the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The Greek word translated dwelt, it means to pitch a tent. Think of it. God moved into the hood. God stepped out of heaven and he walked our mean streets. This gives Jesus some street cred. He has gone out of his way to see where we live and to walk in our shoes. In essence, God became a mouse and joined the colony inside the piano. And please don't gloss over this miracle. The Word, the Logos, the eternal end-all, the source and culmination of all life, time, and eternity fashioned a body from human blubber. He slid from eternity into time through a woman's birth canal, was wrapped in strips of scrap fabric, and then laid in a feed trough. God entered the world through the lowest door. He stooped down to lift us up. God now cries when we cry. He laughs when we laugh. He now hurts when we hurt. You see, the Greeks figured that the Logos perhaps created the universe, but then went into hiding afterwards. John, though, says that Jesus not only created the universe, he joined it in order to save us. Verse 14 continues, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I once had a friend who worked in a nuclear lab and every time I saw him, I would jokingly say, Man, you look great. There's a special glow about you. But this was true of our Lord Jesus. We beheld his glory. You remember when Moses descended from God's presence on top of Mount Sinai, his face shined with God's glory. You remember that? God's light and warmth rubbed off on Moses. His face radiated the glory. It was the glow. Jesus also radiated God's glory. I don't think he glowed in the dark or had a phosphorescent tint about him. But you knew that Jesus had been with the Father. He had an aura about him. He he had a command, an authority about him. Jesus was only 30-something years old, but he seemed timeless when you met him. Everything about him smacked of the supernatural. Traces of God were all over this man. What set Jesus apart was his blend of grace and truth. There was no harshness in the truth that Jesus spoke, never. And there was no compromise in the grace that he showed, never. He was full of grace and truth. There was no sin that Jesus was afraid to call out and expose. But there was no sin that he would not forgive. And note what John calls Jesus. He uses the term again in chapter 3, verse 16. We'll read later. He is the only begotten of the Father. Since the first man, Adam, humans were conceived in sin. That is, except Jesus. For Jesus was born of a virgin. Thus, Jesus escaped Adam's fallen nature. Jesus is the only human being born with God's nature and God's perfection. He was begotten of God. You know, in Hebrew thought, the offspring of a flower is a flower. The offspring of a dog is a dog. Thus, the son of a man is a man. And likewise, the son of God is God. Man begets man. God begets begets God. That Jesus was the only begotten of the Father affirms his deity. When Jesus was conceived, God's spirit borrowed Mary's womb. God's seed nestled in a human cradle. Mary's child was no mere man, but God's offspring. No one else can claim this kind of exclusivity and origin. Jesus is the only begotten of the true God. Well, verse 15 shifts back to John the Baptist. John bore witness of Jesus and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Remember, John and Jesus were cousins. John was six months Jesus' elder. But here John speaks of Jesus' preexistence. For John says, Jesus was before me. Unlike us, Jesus' birth was not his beginning. John knew Jesus had shared eternity with the Father before ever coming to earth. When Jesus came to earth, he bore gifts. And of his fullness, we have all received, and notice, and grace for grace. I like that. We've received grace upon grace. There's a Dennis the Menace comic strip that perfectly defines God's grace. Dennis and his buddy, Joy, they're walking home from the Wilson's house. Their hands are full of cookies and faces are covered with crumbs and chocolate smudges and great big smiles. And Joy asks, I wonder what we did to deserve this. Dennis, normally a menace, a young man certainly in need of God's grace, he answers, Look, Joy, Mrs. Wilson gives us cookies not because we're nice, but because she's nice. And this is grace. It's unprompted love. It originates in our Father God, not us. It's never earned or purchased. Grace is love that's on the house. And Jesus is full of this grace. His love is grace for grace. Literally grace compounded daily. He layers grace on top of grace. And Jesus is not only full of grace toward us. He fills us with grace toward others. Grace is also his power to love others as we've been loved. This is why his church, every church, should be a grace place. For verse 17 tells us, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Through the law, Moses revealed God's justice and God's righteousness. But through Jesus, God has revealed his truth about himself and the reality of his amazing grace. The law of Moses said, don't you cross that line. Jesus says, I'll bear the cross for you. Moses said, you better not. Jesus said, trust me and I'll make you better. Moses said, you you don't deserve God's blessing, whereas Jesus serves up blessings that none of us deserve. If you want justice, see Moses. But if you need mercy like me, if you want grace, call on Jesus. Grace came through Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. Moses wrote traffic tickets. Jesus teaches people to drive safely. And here's the challenge for a church. Do we issue citations to one another or do we focus on getting people in the car and teaching them how to drive? Here's what I see. Christians are agents of God's grace and yet too many churches act like disciples of Moses. Particularly churches here in the deep south. The law gets preached every Sunday. Do this and do that. Too many churches are judgmental and legalistic. At Calvary Chapel, we want to be a grace place. Hey, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Whose disciples are we? Once, a, <clears throat> during a conference of British clergy, a table full of theologians were discussing what, if any, religious belief was unique to Christianity. This group of men were struggling to find answers. One fellow, he suggested the Incarnation. And yet it was noted that several religions had stories of gods appearing in human form. Another fellow said resurrection. Other examples were given of alleged returns from the dead. Well, the conversation became a very heated debate. That's when C.S. Lewis rolled into the room. He asked what all the ruckus was about. The theologians explained to him that they were trying to identify the unique contribution of the Christian faith to the world. Lewis replied matter-of-factly, that's easy. It's grace, and it is. No one else offers grace. All other religions are about what you can do to earn God's favor. Only Christianity says you can't do it, but God gives it to you freely through His Son. Christianity is all about grace and truth. In verse eighteen, for no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Exodus thirty-three twenty-three 23 says Moses saw God's backside. Apparently under the law, that's as close to God as a human gets. His backside. But in Christ, we behold God face to face. For the Son declares Him, we're told. Jesus told Philip, He who has seen me has seen the Father. John says Jesus declared the Father. This Greek term translated declared is the word exegesis, which means to explain or to unfold. Sometimes we refer to a good Bible study as an exegesis of the text. Well, Jesus is the exegesis of God. Watch him. Listen to him. Keep your eyes on Jesus and you get a sermon about God. His whole life, was a divine revelation of the Father. He is the Word made flesh. Well, verse 19 again shifts back to John the Baptist. John was Jesus' advanced man. He paved the way for Jesus by preaching a message of repentance. Now, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? John the Baptist lived an austere life. He came out of the wilderness munching on locusts and wild honey. He lacked the refinement of the Jerusalem priesthood. And yet people from all over Israel flocked to listen to John. He told them to repent of their sin. And then he dunked them into the river. It was a symbol of God's cleansing. The Religious hierarchy in Jerusalem, they saw John as a threat to their influence. As an unsteadying of the status quo. And thus they sent a posse of priests to interrogate him and to question his authority. They asked John directly, Who are you? He answers in verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Remember, Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah, or anointed one. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Now, according to the last chapter of the Old Testament, Elijah will return before the coming of the Messiah. And this will happen. Revelation 11 mentions two witnesses that appear on the earth prior to the second coming of Jesus. It's my opinion one of them will be Elijah. These priests knew Malachi's prophecy and they asked John if he was Elijah. Jesus had said elsewhere that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Or John had said that. But here he makes it clear that no, he is not Elijah. The priests also ask him, are you the prophet? This was a reference to Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. For Moses predicted that God would raise up a prophet like him, the fulfillment of which was the Messiah, Jesus. Again, not John. They continue their interrogation. Then they said to him, who are you? that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And then verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And here Jesus quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. Isaiah mentioned an unnamed prophet, a voice crying. A voice crying in the wilderness. And John is saying, I'm that voice. I'm not the Messiah. I'm the cry, not the guy. What was important about John was his message, not the messenger. You know, in the first century, it was common for visiting dignitaries to send out an advance team. They would travel the route that the king would pass. Dangerous bends in the road were straightened out beforehand. Potholes were repaired. Their job was to make sure that the coast was clear for the king's arrival. John's job had nothing to do with him. He had come to make straight the way of the one who would come after him. John's ministry was to point people to Jesus. Author Pam Petler has a chapter in her book, The Joy of Stress. It's entitled, They're Getting Ahead of You. She tells a story of a graduate student at the University of California in Berkeley. This was an intense, highly competitive young man with great ambitions for himself. And yet one day, while in the library, the fellow went berserk. The police arrested him as he shouted at the other students, Stop! Stop! You're getting ahead of me! You're getting ahead of me! How do you respond when you realize that other people are getting ahead of you. It's been said, just when you start winning the rat race, you meet faster rats. Rats. While you're here tonight, there is a salesman out there planning his day tomorrow, hoping he can get the jump on you. There's a student poring over his books, a musician practicing a ball player training, all of them honing to get the drop on you and prove that they're the best. How do you respond to that? John the Baptist ran his race faithfully, and he left it up to God where he would finish. Are we trying to be somebody, even somebody for God? Are we content to be the nameless voice crying in the wilderness Not a celebrity, not a personality, not the star of the show, but just a shout out for God. I'm happy to be a cry for God. How about you? Verse 24, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees and they asked him saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Again, in short, where do you get your authority? John answered them saying, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you by whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. John says, my authority is an extension of the one who comes after me, the Messiah. Jesus was the one who would come after John. And compared to Jesus, John wasn't even worthy to untie his master's sandal. The job of the humblest slave, by the way. These things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. John's ministry was played out near the very site where God rolled back the waters of the Jordan and allowed Joshua and the Israelites to cross over on dry land. Apparently, that crossing, like John's baptism, was a signal of new beginnings. And so verse 29, So the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For 1,500 years, the Jewish sacrificial system had produced an ocean of blood. Millions upon millions of sacrifices had been offered. And they all pointed to the supreme sacrifice, the climactic sacrifice that would end all other sacrifices, the cross of Jesus. The Son of God will spill His sinless blood. His sacrifice will do what the others foreshadowed but fell short accomplishing, and that is obtain a permanent pardon. And John is clear that Jesus will not only die for Israel's sin, but for the sin of the whole world, for all humanity everywhere. Once a mom, she read to her daughter the story of Abraham and Isaac. The little girl heard how Abraham strapped Isaac to the wood. He raised his knife. And then at the last second, God stopped his hand. He provided a ram for the altar. The mother considered this story to be a testimony to God's faithfulness. But the girl had a different take. She said, I don't like killing animals. When we hear Jesus called the Lamb of God, let's not miss the obvious here. For when you offered a sacrifice, you would take that lamb, you would steady it, you would grab the wool behind its neck, then you would take a knife yourself and you would slit that animal's throat. And there you would watch it convulse and squirt blood, and squirm painfully, and then collapse. It was awful. And to make matters worse, you were probably attached to this little lamb. This would be like you killing killing the family pet. Temple Jews never heard the word sacrifice and reacted glibly. They knew the cost. And so when John pointed to Jesus and shouted, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm sure he said it triumphantly, but you can also be sure that he said it with a tear in his eye, for he knew what it would mean for Jesus. John continues speaking of Jesus, verse 30. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. You know, we think of Jesus and John. They were cousins, remember. We think of them as teenagers, sort of sitting around the campfire, dreaming of their destiny years beforehand, how all this would play out. But John, though he was familiar with Jesus, they were cousins. It wasn't until John baptized Jesus and God's Spirit came upon him that John was certain Jesus was Messiah. He says in verse 32, And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. God affirmed, God himself affirmed Jesus' identity to John. It wasn't the stories John had heard from his mother Elizabeth in her encounters with Mary. It wasn't even Jesus himself who persuaded him. God spoke to him through direct revelation and identified Jesus as the anointed one. Verse 35 introduces to Jesus, Jesus' first two disciples. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. These men were originally followers of John. And again, it's a testimony to John's unselfishness that he pointed them to Jesus. He turned them over to Jesus, in essence. In chapter 3, verse 30, later, John the Baptist will say of Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease. It's amazing, as soon as Jesus took center stage, John started to step aside. He started to bow out. John prepared the way. Then John got out of the way, which is perhaps even more amazing. In verse 38, then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? These men were Peter and Andrew. Here they want to hang out with Jesus. He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. You know, the days in that particular, in ancient days, started around 6 a.m. And so this is now 4 in the afternoon. Now one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. You know, three times Andrew's mentioned in the scripture, and he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. That's what we like about Andrew. And we need to be like him. We need to be bringing people to Jesus. And guess where we can start? With our own family. How about that? For here he brings his brother, Simon Peter. Verse 42 Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Cephas is an Aramaic word. Aramaic was the common language spoken on the streets in Jesus' day. It was a Semitic language that had originated in Babylon. Aramaic was probably the language that Jesus spoke 90% of the time. And here Jesus renamed Simon Cephas, which means stone. Later, Jesus will reiterate this name, this name change by giving Simon still another name. His Greek name will be Petra or Peter, which means rock. You know, often when a person underwent a traumatic turnaround in their life, they would take a new name. Thus, Jesus will transform this man, Peter, from shifty to solid rock. Well, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. And Philip did, by the way. Tradition says that he followed Jesus even after his resurrection. Philip ended up preaching the gospel in what is today Turkey. We're told by history in 54 AD, Philip was scourged and crucified for Christ. Philip followed Jesus for the rest of his life. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip was a Galilean from Bethsaida, which was a little fishing village on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was Peter and Andrew's hometown. And Philip's decision set off a chain reaction. Andrew found Peter. Jesus found Philip. Philip finds his buddy Nathaniel. Verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Don't you want to set off that kind of chain reaction? Grab your friend. Let your friend grab their friend. I'll grab my friend. Let's set off a chain reaction. Let's bring a bunch of people to Jesus. Well, Philip went to Nathanael, but notice how Nathanael responded. And he said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Apparently everybody's somebody in Snellville, but not so in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel was justifiably skeptical. You see, the village of Nazareth had a seedy reputation. It was this tiny Galilean town that sat at the crossroads of several major caravan routes. It was the equivalent of a South Georgia truck stop. Nazareth was the kind of town that would produce a son of a gun, not a son of God. And that's why Nathaniel scoffed. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I love the response. Philip said to him, Come and see. This is how Jesus responded to Andrew and Peter back in verse 39. The phrase, come and see, was an expression used by the rabbis. It meant, let's sit down and let's investigate this matter together. Let's examine this personally. Realize, Christianity sells itself. Once you remove the fog and the misconceptions and help a person see clearly, Christianity is an attractive way of life. It's the truth. It doesn't need a hard sell, all it takes is to A little bit of time. All it takes is to say to someone, hey, come and see. Let's explore this together. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Apparently, Jesus had never met Nathanael, yet he had this supernatural knowledge of him. He knew Nathanael was an open-minded man, and he would assess the facts fairly. When Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. When Nathanael had questioned if anything good can come from Nazareth, and so Jesus reveals his prophetic abilities. In his mind's eye, he says, he had seen Nathanael under the fig tree, enjoying the shade, munching on some fruit when Philip walked up to him. And the fact that Jesus was able to tell Nathanael this, even though he hadn't been there, Nathaniel was impressed. This is a revelation from God. He answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Nathaniel realized what had happened. Jesus had seen across time and space. He had seen what no man can naturally see and it caused Nathaniel to put his trust in Jesus. Verse 50. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. In other words, you ain't seen nothing yet. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is obviously an allusion to Genesis chapter 28 and the story of Jacob's ladder. You remember Jacob was on the run from his brother Esau when he saw a vision of a ladder coming down from heaven. It was as if God was dropping down a ladder or sending down a rope Nathaniel may have been meditating on Genesis 28 when Philip approached him. Jesus is saying here that he is the ladder that Genesis spoke of. He is the way from God to man. He is the rope let down to mankind. Nathaniel will know God by following Jesus. And over the next three years, Nathaniel did see heaven come to earth. He saw the miraculous and he saw the angelic. He saw bold evidence for Jesus' deity. As Philip said to him at the beginning, come and see. His journey with Jesus was about to begin. Well, here's a quick summary of John chapter 1. Jesus is the Logos. He's the life. He's the light. He's the lamb. And he's the ladder. And Jesus will be all that to you and more if you choose to follow him, if you choose to trust your life to Jesus. And it's my hope that you will.